Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Take a deep breath while we palpate the pulse of science. I'm Patrick Ruby. On this edition, we'll feature award-winning, unifying and polarising scientists. But first up, here's the news with Ian Wolfe. Nature reports a side-splitting tale about testing condoms safely with a more accurate sex simulator. Condom testing makes sure they won't break and accidentally inseminate or infect someone. International standards for condom testing require two tests of the tensile strength of the condom material. One measures how far a ring of the material elongates when stretched between two rollers. The other involves inflating a condom until it bursts and recording the pressure and volume at which that happens. Clinical trials have reported failure rates around 1% due to breakage, but the sample sizes were too small to say why they break. Lab tests of condoms made of varying thicknesses of materials have done a poor job of duplicating real-world splitting, making it difficult to design safer condoms. Now, a team led by Nicholas White, head of quality control at SSL International in Cambridge, UK, which owned the major condom brand Durex, have attempted a more realistic model of sex with a condom. Using a device with an adjustable thrust hole diameter, thrust rate and lubrication, First, the team used a microscope to examine the breaks in 972 male condoms made of latex or polyurethane that were returned to the company between 1998 and 2005 by dissatisfied customers. More than 60% of the condoms were broken at the closed end, often with an outwards circular rupture that the research calls an eruption, where there'd been no manufacturing flaw in the condom film or any evidence of misuse. The researchers replicated the breakage pattern by altering the parameters of their device so that the test condoms were progressively stretched at the tip during repeated thrusting. As expected, latex, from which the vast majority of condoms were made, showed a better elastic recovery than polyurethane, which is thinner and used in more expensive condom products. Yet both materials tend to break the same way, regardless of their elasticities. Just about the only thing the humans aren't strong enough to break that's also thin and flexible enough, is parachute nylon. But that's porous. White hopes that research will help in the design of condoms that can better withstand eruptions. Design your own mobile phone. Starting with the case, openmoco.com have released to the public the computer-aided design drafts for their mobile phone case. This means you can download the files, run an open-source design program, and make the phone look how you like. When your design is finished, you upload your design to the website and the OpenMoco people will render them in plastic with a 3D printer. You'll also be able to see everyone else's designs and choose one of them if you like theirs better, or download it and tweak it to be just the way you want. Anything you design and sell made of plastic could be printed on a 3D printer. They offer free software for you to download a design at openmoco.com. Then there's the inside of the phone to customise. Bug Labs offer you modules. Do you want Wi-Fi, a camera, GPS? There are modules for all these functions. You can mix and match and reinvent the phone. 
which are like a camera that tags photos with a location it's grabbed from a GPS satellite and then uploads the photos to the web. Just fit the components together like Lego. Want a simpler phone? Then just order the basics. They currently offer modules for GPS, digital camera, video cameras, colour LCD touchscreens, and an accelerometer motion sensor. In firmware, they have open source software from their users for such things as Twitter clients, programs that let you pan through a GPS map by moving the phone, time-lapse photography, and an alarm clock based on destination from GPS instead of time. Your phone is only limited by your imagination and your budget. Check them out at buglabs.net. Thank you, Ian. The Australian Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering's Clooney's Ross Awards was held last week to celebrate Australian scientists who have displayed a mastery of new technology and business expertise. This week, Amy Bullen will interview two of the winners of this award, David Noon, who has created an online system that measures small movements of rocks, which helps to save lives in open pit mines, and Stuart Wenham, who is a leader in photovoltaics research and has produced many successful solar products. The first interview I did was with David Noon. Can you tell me a bit about the new mine safety system that you've developed? It's a radar system which is used by the world's uh, large mines and it helps the mine to anticipate rockfalls before the failures occur. Right, so how does it do that? It scans the wall and it can measure very small movements, precursor movements that are signs for a collapse that may occur in hours or days in advance. Right, you say it scans the wall, is this using radar? Yes, it's using radar, it uses radio waves and we can scan the wall from up to a kilometre or even more away and can measure these very small movements before the collapse occurs. Traditionally, mines were monitored with uh, spotters, that is, people to watch the face and to provide a warning when they see the telltale signs, right. or using points on the wall that a surveyor may survey in with a prism or with a laser. What the radar does is it, it removes the requirement of having any points on the wall, and it can scan remotely and continuously. So how did you come up with this invention? We were working at the University of Queensland on radar applications for mining and it was a mining engineer in consultation with one of our staff members who said that one of the problems is stability of rock walls and we were working on radar for measuring very small movements and uh, we decided that we should apply this radar technology to, to the application of open pit mining. And how long have you been working in this field? We started in the radar field for mining in about 1993 and in 1997 was when we started the research on the radar system for monitoring of walls. We worked on that research until about 2000 when we were able to demonstrate the principle and in 2002-2003 we were able to form the company to commercialise the technology and now five years later, we're five years old now, we have uh, over 100 staff and working in over 15 countries in providing real-time monitoring of slopes using radar. And what kind of science are you using, are you saying using um, radar measurements? It's uh, called radar interferometry, which mm -hmm. is a very fancy word 
for a very slow speed camera radar. So, that, so the, the police that use radar for measuring the speed of a car at 60 kilometres per hour, well, we're using, using a similar principle except measuring a moving rock wall at 0.1 millimetres per hour. interview in the Clooney's Ross Awards series is with Stuart Wenham. Well, we've been hearing a lot about the importance of alternative energy sources, what with climate change and everything. I was wondering how photovoltaic cells can help with this. Well, I think the main challenge for photovoltaic cells is to try and bring down the cost to make the technology more economically viable. It's always been seen as a technology that's got enormous potential for the future, but the, the main challenge is going to be to keep improving the efficiency and bringing down the cost of the technology so that it becomes similarly low cost and even lower cost than the other renewable energy technologies. So over the last 20 to 30 years, we've certainly seen the cost come down very significantly. It's come down by uh, more than a factor of 10 over the last 30 years. And that trend is expected to continue. So many of the experts in the field believe that it's only a matter of time until the costs will become uh, uh, eventually lower than what fossil fuel generated electricity can do. Right. So you're saying at the moment these cells are more expensive than some other alternative energy sources. What advantages does solar have? Well, photovoltaics has a range of advantages. It's a very elegant power source in as far as a solar cell has no moving parts. It produces no noise. There's no waste products. There's no pollution produced by them. And there's pretty much no wear-out mechanism. They're a very reliable source. They require no maintenance when operating. So you can pretty much just put them out in the sunlight and let them keep operating. There's no wear-out mechanism, so it's not like, you know, after a few years they're going to be worn out. The manufacturers, in fact, offer typically a 25-year warranty. And anything that can be powered by electricity can be powered by solar cells. They can be formed in whatever size of system, so they can power very small electrical loads or very large electrical loads like entire cities. So they're able to be very easily deployed onto either rooftops or basically to any, any location. So they're easy to incorporate into building structures and architectural structures. So there's a, a great deal of appeal about the technology and its elegance and, and uh, it certainly technically can solve all of our energy requirement needs. It's really just the economics of doing so using that as the solution. How do these solar cells work? Okay, well let me first of all say that solar cells operate on a totally different principle to what solar thermal collectors do, in other words hot water heaters. Let me start with hot water heaters. When the sun shines on a black surface, what happens is that black surface simply absorbs the heat from the sun and that heat is then used to heat something like uh, hot water. Now a solar cell works on a totally different principle. What it does is it converts the light directly into electricity. The heat isn't involved in the process. In fact, the heat, any of the sunlight that's converted to heat is actually a bad thing. So what happens in a solar cell is that the light penetrates into the silicon material because most solar cells are made from silicon. 
when the light penetrates into the silicon, what it does is it gives up its energy to one of the atoms, and that energy is used to strip off one of the atoms that are used in the bonding arrangement between the silicon atoms. And once that electron has the energy from the light, it's then free to move around the silicon material. Now, the way we design and build a solar cell is that we produce a structure within the silicon that transfers that negative charge from the electron up to one of the metal contacts so that then we can connect a wire to it and allow that electron to flow through the external wire still with the energy that the sunlight gave to it. And that's what electricity is. Electricity is simply that flow of electric charge. And so those electrons that we generate from the photons of light, those electrons can then travel in the external wires through the external load and give up the energy from the sunlight into, uh, into that electrical load. I know that with research partner Martin Green, you've been looking at making solar cells more efficient. I guess to summarise it, what we've needed to do is look at, analyse and understand all the loss mechanisms associated with how energy is lost in that conversion process and then find innovative ways of reducing down those loss mechanisms. And by doing that, we've therefore been able to gradually increase the efficiencies of the solar cells and over a period of time we've been able to develop several new technologies that have been able to achieve either efficiency records or else there have been new technologies that we've been able to get industry interested in commercialising. Amy will interview the other two winners of the ATSE Clooney's Ross Awards, Evan Mareels and Colin Sullivan, as part of next week's show. From the blue planet to life in cold blood, he's been educating the world for decades on the wonder of living things. Here's Victoria Bond with a tribute to David Attenborough. The dragon people want that. That's just great. I mean, it's extremely lucky. I don't want to do otherwise. The giant arum of Borneo develops the biggest undivided leaf of all. This is the loneliest and the coldest place on Earth. And this is one of the wettest places on Earth. This is the biggest flower in the world. And this is the most massive living thing on Earth. This is the biggest creature that exists on the planet. Indeed, the biggest one that has ever existed. The blue whale. I can see its tail just under my boat here. And it's coming up, coming up. Widely considered one of the pioneers of nature documentaries, David Attenborough has been the face of the BBC's natural history programs for more than 50 years. He is perhaps best known for his life series, in which he was both the writer and the presenter. The series includes over 79 one-hour episodes, which depict the world as Attenborough sees it. And suddenly you got quite a lump in your throat that you suddenly saw that for the first time, and it was the first time, it was possible for a single unit and a single man and a single viewer to get a comprehensive view of the planet as a planet. It began in 1979 with the trilogy of Life on Earth, The Living Planet, and The Trials of Life, which aimed to examine the world's organisms from viewpoints of taxonomy, ecology, and the stages of life. He then followed with Life in the Freezer, about Antarctica, 
the private life of plants, the life of birds, the life of mammals, life in the undergrowth, before concluding with Life in Cold Blood, which finished its Australian broadcast on May 12th. Life in Cold Blood features reptiles and amphibians from all over the globe, including Australia. Some Australian animals featured include the Parenti, Australia's largest monitor lizard, pygmy shinglebacks, or blue-tongued skinks, which were once considered extinct until rediscovered in 1992. Of particular interest is the lungfish, which demonstrates how reptiles became the first backboned animals to colonize land. In an interview to promote Life in Cold Blood, Sir Attenborough has said, The evolutionary history is finished. The endeavor is complete. If you'd asked me 20 years ago whether we'd be attempting such a mammoth task, I'd have said, don't be ridiculous. These programs tell a particular story, and I'm sure others will come along and tell it much better than I did. But I do hope that if people watch it in 50 years' time, it will still have something to say about the world we live in. Attenborough is also an avid anthropologist. His other productions include The Tribal Eye, which showcases tribal art, The First Eden, which focuses on man's relationship with natural habitats of the Mediterranean, and Lost World, Vanished Lives, in which he demonstrates his lifelong passion for fossils. A Reader's Digest polls of Britons found him to be the most trusted celebrity in the United Kingdom. But what is it about David Attenborough that has made him so popular and influential? Born in 1926, David Attenborough grew up collecting fossils, stones, and other natural specimens. This led him to pursue a science education at Cambridge. After graduation and some work as a children's science book editor, he applied for a job with BBC Radio. Although he didn't get the job, he was presented with a position in an emerging medium, television. Soon, he was in charge for the non-fiction broadcast section and began his career as a public educator. Rising through the ranks, he became the director of programming for BBC Two, and eventually he was in charge of both BBC One and BBC Two. He resigned when asked to become the director general of the BBC, preferring to roam the globe rather than dream up programs behind a desk. In addition to the Life series, he also wrote and presented Blue Planet, the first ever comprehensive series on natural history of world oceans, and Planet Earth, which was the first nature series filmed entirely in high definition. But the world has changed considerably since David Attenborough has started filming in 1954. Increasingly, his topics have focused on conservation efforts and the influence that people have on their environment. In 2000, he released State of the Planet, which examines the environmental crisis threatening the ecosystem. Later, in 2006, he wrote and presented the two-part environmental documentary, Are We Changing Planet Earth? and Can We Save Planet Earth? as part of the BBC's Climate Chaos season of programs on global warming. Are We Changing Planet Earth? shines a light on the recent changes and problems arising from global warming, whereas Can We Save Planet Earth? brings forward some potential solutions. In some striking instances, Attenborough revisits some locations of past footage to look at the effect that climate change has had on them. The future of life on Earth depends on our ability to take action. Many individuals are doing what they can, but real success can only come if there's a change in our societies, in our economics, and in our politics. I've been lucky in my lifetime to see some of the greatest spectacles that the natural world has to offer. Surely we have a responsibility to leave for future generations a planet that is healthy and habitable by all species. Although his life series is over, don't you Attenborough fans despair? He has stated that he is planning a series about Charles Darwin and evolution. 
That was a tribute to David Attenborough by Victoria Bond and Martin Ficini. It's the sound of science. The sound of science. Science. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SER.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And now for one of our more polarising scientists. We've recently watched Richard Dawkins' Enemies of Reason on Aussie TV. This is a series where Richard Dawkins interviews astrologists, mystics and psychics, challenging them with the scientific method. Um, I'm remembering one particular interview he had with some water dowsers. Did anyone else watch that? Yeah, he uh, he went and observed a structured experiment by a, a philosopher where he tested water dowsers to see if they could detect water um, above chance. And uh, the experimental setup was uh, six buckets that were covered, and in each bucket was either um, a water bottle full of sand uh, in five buckets, and in one bucket had a water bottle full of water. And so the water dowsers had to do this six times, and it was a double-blind experiment where neither the experimenter or the subjects knew where the water was. So it was a proper scientific experiment. Yeah, all, all the proper controls were in place. I remember a couple of the reactions I thought were quite surprising. Um, one, uh, one of the dowsers was particularly religious, and he, thought he, he saw the fact that he only got, I think he got one right. Um, he saw that as a joke played on him by God. Yeah. And there was another lady who just, um, she couldn't believe it. She was quite distraught at the fact that she didn't get all six right. Yeah, you could really see that they they really believed in their own abilities to, to find the water. Like, some of them were definitely shocked. Was there any other parts of the series that you thought, um, well, generally, did you like it? Did you think Richard Dawkins did a good job? I think it. I think it. It was. It was good and bad. It. There was some. There were some times where his. He definitely appeared condescending and uh, unappreciative of other people's views. But I think in this particular series, that's exactly what he's going for. So in terms of like, sometimes you have to look. A, you have to look a bit mean when discussing um, g- topics like genetics with um, mystics who believe that um, people who descended from the inhabitants of Atlantis ha- don't have two pairs of chromosomes, they have four pairs of chromosomes, and they're aligned on a, in a pyramid structure, all facing each other. And he actually had to stop and say, some of you might be thinking that I'm just taking a punch at some easy targets, so let's move on. It's a hard charge to avoid, mm-hmm. because he is going up against people who don't use the scientific method to decide what's true and what's not. Mm-hmm. And But they're making scientific declarations about their DNA, so it's... Mm-hmm. Mm. hard to for him to come across as respectful right. while saying you're completely wrong and you haven't even thought it through. Mm-hmm. It's like there's there's more than one way of, of looking at things, except mine's right. And so, especially when the ideas are testable, like in the instance of the water dowsers. People seem to make uh, pseudoscientific um, explanations to explain, well, create pseudoscientific explanations for certain phenomena that aren't actually scientifically tested. Mm-hmm. Well, like in instances of, of like miraculous healing, something where you can't take a controlled test and um, examine it rigorously, or things like subjective experiences that you simply can't subject the scientific method to. Um, that's where a lot of these, a lot of the people would sort of back into those, those territories, because um, he would approach them with like a, 
empirical evidence to the contrary. And then they would fall back upon some sort of, um, well, I know it's true because I've experienced it myself and you know, there's nothing you could really say that will change my beliefs in that. Proof by personal experience. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the, one of the um, reasons given in his book, The God Delusion, for people to maintain their belief. But personal. see, I think that's the problem with Dawkins' approach and some other people's approach is they're not respecting that these people have had a post. They've had a very real experience. The experience is real, even if their conclusions about what it means might not be correct. Their experience is real, and so because they've had a real experience, and you're telling them no, they didn't. Well, it felt to me like he was preaching to the converted. I mean, I I believe everything he has to say, but if I was in any way skeptic, his manner and tone of interviewing these people would absolutely just turn me away from what he has to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't think it was constructive at all. I, That's I mean, the problem. It was it was a great show, but um, I don't think it it's done anything positive in terms of helping people understand the scientific method. But is there a better way to approach people who uh, don't have support for their claims and well, confront rather than them with that? Them, because he was just making them defensive and then they dug in their heels and it's absolutely impossible to convince someone if they're feeling attacked, mm-hmm. I think. It's really difficult. Like, if you have the water dowsers and you set up the tests the way they want them to be set up and have scientists on it and they all agree be ahead of time that this is the right way and then they do the test and they don't perform the way they expect to perform, some of them might be reasonable and go, oh, well, maybe I've always been wrong my whole life. Or they <laughs> might say something's funny about this test or something's funny today or something's funny about me. It's, it's mm-hmm. hard to give up a belief that you have a power to do something when mm-hmm. you've felt that power and had success in the past and suddenly these nasty scientists come along and it doesn't work anymore. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild passionate praise, then send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Ian Wolfe, Victoria Bond, Martin Ficini, and Amy Bullen. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Patrick Ruby. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that there are belts of radiation in outer space which are a hazard for future space flyers to overcome. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. Even scientific facts are not perfectly exact, but they are as exact as it is humanly possible to make them at the time.
It's a scientific fact, a scientific fact. It has to be correct, it has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact.